This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Yeah, I'm flying like an eagle, baby. Welcome back. I'm Professor America Street, a.k.a. the hip-hop prof, the empirical pimp. I'm legit with a logit, the militant poet, so act like you know it. In fact, they call me the Ric Flair of business radio. Today, woo, I've got the style and profile like never before. This is Marketing Matters on Sirius XM's business radio. Channel 111, Barbara, is out for the next two weeks, so I'm here chilling in the studio, musing on various issues of STPM. That's, of course, segmentation, targeting, positioning, and messaging. This is Marketing Matters, a show that proves that the difference between success and failure is your ability to create deep emotional connections with your consumers. Marketing Matters airs live every Wednesday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and is, of course, replayed several times throughout the week. Speaking of trying to create connections and innovate with your consumers, I'm happy to welcome our next guest. This is Soon Yu, author of a book called Iconic Advantage, Don't Chase the New, Innovate the Old. Soon is an international speaker and best-selling author on innovation and design who has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, and many various other outlets. Soon, welcome to the program. Thank you. I, I just have to say that your opening for your show and the nicknames that you have are are just incredible, iconic signatures, and it's probably the best intro I've ever had to any talk show in the world. So, oh, uh, congrats, man! Thank you very much, and I really appreciate the positive feedback, sir. I am so excited to have you on the program because you're doing some amazing stuff. And before we launch into the book, which I want to spend plenty of time so our listeners can get your wisdom, uh, I do want to spend some time really quickly sort of talking about your journey because you're kind of a, you're a math guy, right? I mean, you have an electrical engineering background and you you spent some time at Stanford as well. So talk us through your journey a little bit so we can get a bit of context here. (laughs) Oh, great question. Um, I'll have to back up even a little bit before getting into college. I I was actually torn as a high schooler between going into uh, fashion design or electrical engineering. So I always had this uh, dichotomy and this sort of tension, yin-yang tension, between uh, the arts and the science. And Mm. uh, I came from a fairly strict Asian family that just didn't understand the value of fashion or design. And therefore, uh, I was very gently guided or kicked in the butt toward <laughs> electrical engineering. And I did it for actually, I, I was one of those five year students, not four years, right? It took me five years to figure out how to, to do all the math and the physics and all that and uh-huh. get a degree in double E, okay? Uh-huh. And um, then I spent literally the last 30 years uh, trying to find, go back to my original roots of maybe going into fashion and design and marketing. And so, yeah, that was the start of my journey. Uh-huh. And um, even though I would say I had, okay, a limited uh, proficiency in the arts or the analytical arts, okay, you know, doing, you know, analysis and mm-hmm. doing all the math and stuff like that, uh, my heart was never quite there. Gotcha. And so I, I remember I, in between my junior and senior year, I worked for a very big uh, uh, semiconductor company called uh, AMD. They were the big competitor for Intel at the time. Okay. Uh, back back in the days. Back in the days. Yeah. In, in former <laughs> times. Yes. In the former times, right. <laughs> and uh, I, I did it for six months, and I, even though I could do the work, I found myself always gravitating towards the marketing folks, the sales folks, mm-hmm. uh, the, the graphics folks. 
And so um, when I finally did graduate from college, I actually interviewed with anybody that wasn't electrical engineering. And, <laughs> uh, and America's, I remember one instance where I was actually interviewing with, uh, I know you guys are in Philadelphia. I don't know if you have Safeway, one of the big uh, grocery stores. Yes. But I interviewed for their produce training program. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and I went in there, and the guy goes, you know, HP is next door. Uh, this this isn't really quite <laughs> what we imagined. Uh, and he, so he asked me to name seven different types of lettuce, and I can name like two. Like I think I said butter and green leaf or something like that. Wow. And obviously, I didn't make it to the second round. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's been my journey. I've been, you know, trying ever since to really get back into this idea of, you know, um, creating meaning and touching people, not just in the head, but really even deeper than the heart in terms of something that you actually do a lot of research on in terms of what they believe about themselves Mm. and about the brands that they associate with and what they want to communicate about themselves with the brands they use and associate with. And, and so that's been my I think, really a roundabout journey to try to get to kind of what you already know. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. See, here's what's interesting, Soon. You can already name two more types of lettuce than I, so you're actually an expert uh, (laughs) in lettuce identification. So that's fantastic. I think it's interesting, though, this this sort of uh, tension between, you know, the desire to go left brain, right brain, and you mentioned that as well. I had a similar kind of, you know, issue in terms of trying to figure out what my passion was, and I ended up in a company that I absolutely hated. It just was so, it was a huge company was bureaucracies and all kinds of rules and all these kinds of things. It's terrible experience for me. It was so bad. I I won't even, I I will protect the name of the company. I'll only give its (laughs) uh, initials UPS. And uh, (laughs) sorry. Oh, I'll be here. Yes, there you go. Brown. And it was very, very bad. But anyway, so, you know, I I, I sympathize with what you're talking about uh, soon because I had that same kind of a journey. It sounds like you found your passion in really sort of moving to this other area of investigating how to create these fantastic experiences and really thinking about, I love the way you say this, creating meaning. I love that idea because the the best marketing in the world is the marketing that does this, that to your point soon, is it touches people in a deeper way. And you found this, this connection of trying to understand this better and then help companies and consumers do this better, right? That's, that's what I'm trying to do. And so far it's been fun. And so far I've met a lot of great people and uh, I have a lot of great clients that have sort of benefited from the idea that it's more than just function and benefit Mm -hmm. that actually people very much, very much are looking for this idea of brands that speak to who they are and what they want to be about. And so, you know, when you reach the idea of becoming iconic, you actually become a standard bearer for something that people care about. Mm. And if you reach that level, we our research has found that you're anywhere from 3x to 100x more profitable oh. uh, from a gross margin perspective than other uh, comparable uh, brands in uh, the same category or niche. Wow. And so a lot yeah. of this a lot of this early learning was uh, you you sort of honed your chops soon. Uh, when you were, let me ask you this, when you were global vice president of innovation uh, for VF Corporation. So you worked with a lot of really powerful brands during that time, right? That's right. Well, VF, I got exposed to, um, VF has a portfolio of over 30 brands. I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners are going, VF? What is that? Well, <laughs> you'll you'll VF, thank him later, ladies and germs. Trust me. Right. Yeah, VF um, is actually a parent organization to brands like the North Face, Vans, mm-hmm. Timberland. When I was there, it was uh, Seven for Mankind, Kipling, Nautica, a whole bunch of, you know, 
uh, I think, household apparel brands that had both, obviously, presence in the Macy's and, mm-hmm. and the Targets and the, and, of the world, but also a lot of uh, the malls. And so, yeah, I mean, it was fun working for brands that uh, not only had iconic product franchises, but, you know, were very iconic in the nature. Like when you think of the North Face, you think of an explorer, you yes. think of somebody who was always trying to reach the highest pinnacle. When you think of Timberland, you think of the very iconic yellow boot and how it's manifested yes. itself both in terms of hmm. what I call, uh, you know, urban trailblazing and yes. also obviously forest trailblazing. So mm-hmm. it's been a very advanced, my goodness, we're talking about iconic brands and yes. the whole skate community, but more importantly, the creative artist community. I mean, that that's very much about it. So I, I went to school basically <laughs> learning from a lot of the great brand leaders that were running these businesses mm-hmm. in terms of how they built the businesses up and more importantly, how they spoke to their audiences and really kept the brands um, uh, in terms of creating the right meaning for the audiences to be aligned with their identities. These are fantastic lifestyle brands, Soon. And so I, I love the way you did. Yeah, this is fantastic. You just went through and you described at least three, maybe even four, incredibly unique, richly, qualitatively uh, defined personas that really map onto how these different brands were smart and able to actually create a, an identity-based connection with their consumers. So this has been actually in, in, in your mind and working on this for quite a long time. But I also, I did a little bit of research as well. I also uh, understand that you also worked at the Clorox company. Is this correct? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there, they, if you look at the Clorox portfolio, there's quite a few iconic uh, brands that, you know, are in different categories. Clorox is synonymous with bleach. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a category <laughs> generic, if you will, but yes. it's also really the oh, standard bearer of both the, the category benefit and the, the category quality. But it also owns brands that you probably would be surprised. It owns Hidden Valley Ranch, which is the iconic oh. brand for ranch dressing. Wow. It owns STP, which is, if oh. you remember, that's yes. additive you put to <laughs> get your card of room, room, you know? And, yes. And so, and oh, you're going to love this Combat Roach Killer. <laughs> <laughs> that's a classic. That's a classic, yeah. And I, I worked on all the sexy brands. I worked on toilet bowl cleaners and liquid plumber and all the you know, stuff like that. <laughs> that's exa- But it's interesting, though, because students in my class soon often ask me, they say, you know, are there product categories where you cannot really stretch this persuasive logic and argument around identity and around emotion? And sometimes I'll ask students, what do you think? And they'll say things like, well, what about toilet paper or, you know, bleach or whatever? But you point to some interesting ways that you can still, even in some of these very mundane categories, still create meaning, right? Absolutely. Um, You know, this is a flashback to when I got on probably the sexiest business at Clorox, which was toilet bowl cleaners. Okay, it really was, right? (laughs) And. For the longest time, we had done ads that were very effective, you know, when the persuasion and the recall and all the stuff that AIS, whatever, whoever does the tracking, right, Mm -hmm. the measurements, they all scored fairly well in terms of when we did problem, uh, problem, our solution, and then the benefit to you. You know, it's kind of that formula, right? Gotcha, right. And most of the ads were kind of like that type of formula. We tried something totally different. We actually created a talking toilet bowl that actually the lid was sort of the lips moving interesting and and it was singing of all things right a singing toilet wow singing and talking toilet right (laughs) and the persuasion scores tripled interesting Mm -hmm. and and that's through the personification Mm -hmm. of 
an everyday object that we take for granted and actually giving this idea of us humans having empathy for a toilet bowl. And- <laughs> you imagine? <laughs> who, who would have ever thought that you could have empathy for a toilet bowl? That is fantastic to have that insight soon to anthropomorphize a toilet bowl. <laughs> I know, I know. And so that was one of the big aha moments for me is like, whoa, you know, even a toilet bowl, and if you give it more than just the functional uh, description and you give it like human characteristics where all of a sudden they create, you create meaning for some of what it's trying to deal with. And, and, and the analogy is trying to give it fresh breath, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, it literally tripled the persuasion score. Right? And, 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 you know, we, it was, and I think it blew the management away, and it, it led to growing the franchise dramatically. Interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Sun Yu, who is author of Iconic Advantage, a book we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, if you're interested in joining the conversation, we're talking about all kinds of cool things like toilets and bleach and all kinds of awesome stuff, how to take a brand, how to take something mundane, turn it into something meaningful, turn it into something emotional. Emotional, turn it into something real that can touch the lives of consumers. Give us a call if you want to join this conversation, 1-844-WAR-TEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. Now, soon I have to turn to the book and jump into this and talk a little bit about exactly what it is that you have researched here and some of the key findings. This iconic advantage is a fantastic book. It challenges business from Fortune 500 to venture-backed startups to refocus, right, on innovation priorities, build greater what you refer to as iconicity, and offer deep insights on establishing these very, very timeless aspects of distinction and relevance. How did you get started on doing the research? How did you write the book? And and, and just walk us through this process and give us some of these insights, and we're just hungry for them. Sure. Well, (laughs) Uh, like most things in my life, it began with uh, taking the wrong turn. <laughs> <laughs> and in this instance, it was a lot of wrong turns, meaning I spent most of my working career, over 30 years, um, working in innovation, in marketing, and new products, and design, really trying to commercialize new ideas to the world. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I've had a lot more failures than I've had success. Uh-huh. And in the back of my mind was this sort of burning curiosity, thanks to all these failures, as to why certain businesses were so much better at commercializing new ideas than I was. <laughs> and so I started to sort of research that idea and that question, and I looked at over 50 companies, and I saw, wow, they were doing innovation, marketing, design, new product a lot differently than I was doing it. Okay. And in fact, I spent most of my life thinking, oh, new idea, new space, let's create something, wow. And I found that a lot of these companies, like the Nikes of the world, the Apples, the BMWs, mm-hmm. the Amazons of the world, mm-hmm. what they were actually doing was taking something that was already working, something that was already hugely successful, something okay. that they already had both channels, channel customers and consumers and clients who already loved them, okay, mm-hmm. and taking their shiny new ideas and instead of applying those shiny new ideas to shiny new spaces, they actually applied it to old dingy spaces. Oh, okay. okay. To make their old dingy stuff more shiny. <laughs> and I said, wow, that's a really interesting concept. You Very know, cool. uh-huh. innovate your strength, innovate where you already have momentum. But there was a challenge in doing that. Uh, the, the challenge was let's, let's take cloth. 
you bring in this when we brought in a lot of bright people from Wharton, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of my best friends are from Wharton, and, oh. and obviously, you bring them into the bleach uh, or to the Clorox family, and there's yeah. all these new spaces we could go after, uh-huh. e.g., toilet bowl cleaners, right? But, <laughs> but then ask them to ask them to work on the Mama brand and mm-hmm. do eight, uh, version nine point six point seven of <laughs> something that's been done for a hundred years. Yes, it just isn't exciting for somebody right. or for anyone to sort of make their mark in an organization or be known for something. But clearly the companies like the BMWs of the world or the Nikes of the world or the Apples of the world, that's what they did. They brought in their best and brightest and had them take what was already working and make it work even better. Even better. And mm-hmm. here's, the, here's the big aha for me was not only were they doing this, but it made all the sense in the world because if you're innovating what you're already strong at, where mm-hmm. you already have market med- momentum, where mm-hmm. you already have consumers and customers who love you, where you already have um, manufacturing lines that are already you know proven and capabilities internally that have already you know had the experience curve, the benefit of that experience curve, mm-hmm. you're going to be likely a lot more successful, a lot faster, and at the end of the day, a lot more profitable with all your innovation efforts. And uh, one of the big unknown secrets was Nike does this a lot. And you would think that this this idea of focusing what I call iconic advantage strategy mm-hmm. would be the one that would be a champion by, obviously, the product folks and the designers. No, instead, oh. the people that were the most excited about it were your CFOs and your supply chain folks. Interesting. And so, you know, if you're a marketer and you want to get money and you want to get <laughs> organizational support, right? follow this type of strategy of innovating the old. And, and so that's the aha moment. And the other thing I learned is that, you know, a lot of times I thought that these iconic franchises – got lucky, meaning that they had the smarts and rode the right waves to be around long enough to become the standard bearer and have that longevity. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of it was luck. And I found out, no, in these companies, it's extremely deliberate. And so those were some big aha moments for me. Wow. Can you t- actually, cause I love this. So it, obviously this is where you got the name of the book, Iconic Advantage, Don't Chase the New, uh, Innovate the Old. Uh, where give us some specific examples of some some specific things that some of these companies did with their specific product that really sort of you know that light bulb went off for you and said that was cool and this is a this is evidence of this very interesting approach which is to stay in your lane but to innovate in your lane in these kind of key areas that you have momentum soon. Sure, sure. You know, so I, I think the first thing we're trying to answer in the book um, was kind of. What makes anything iconic? And to understand that, then we could reverse engineer what were the principles and best practices used to supercharge the qualities that make something iconic? And then, you know, which companies were doing that? That was sort of the process we took. And when we looked across all these great companies, there are three things that really signify um, iconic franchises, brands, and services. The first is this. They are distinctive. There is something memorable, unique. Um, differentiated about them that makes them stand out versus their competition. So mm-hmm. that's sort of quality number one, this idea of having something distinctive. Okay. The second quality is whatever that distinction is, that specific distinction is actually highly relevant. So the, the idea is relevant. Okay. 
it's highly relevant to the audience that they want to be iconic with. Now, the key on this uh, relevance is that you actually want to be timelessly relevant. You want to be relevant yesterday, you want to be relevant today, and obviously you want to be relevant in the future. Gotcha. So does that mean mean to avoid, like, um, fads and trends like that soon? Yes. Gotcha. Absolutely. Because the goal, in order to get – so you add in the third quality, which is they had universal recognition for their – uh, their relevance for that distinction. Once mm-hmm. you have those three combined, if it's timeless, then you have longevity. And through longevity of having recognition for your distinctive relevance, you become the standard bearer for that distinctive relevance. And when you reach that standard bearer level, that's when you reach iconic status. Uh-huh. So it was distinction, relevance, and recognition. And doing that over time is what created um, this idea of iconicity. Interesting. So Knowing those are the three qualities, what can you do to supercharge those three qualities? Mm-hmm. So in the book, we outline the three things. And, and while I'll do the walkie through an example of, of how one company took these three things, but I, I talk about this idea of, one, you need to create lo- noticing power, which is about creating distinction, something that makes you stand out and, take, and people take notice. Mm-hmm. The second is um, I call it staying power. It's not just about relevance today, but it's about relevance both tomorrow, today, and in the future. And so Got it. This idea of creating timeless relevance and sticking around, so staying power. And the last, once you have great um, distinction from your noticing power and timeless relevance from your staying power, you want to create scaling power to create as much recognition as uh, recognition as possible. Gotcha. So it's those three powers that you're trying to focus on. Uh-huh. So when you think about somebody who does this well, I'll, I'll take one of the brands we all know and we all love, which is Nike. Mm-hmm. The Nike Air Max just celebrated its 31st anniversary. It's okay. been around for 31, 31 years. Right. A long time. Long time. So how, how have they been able to do this? Well, First and foremost, they have a franchise that has great noticing power. Whenever you see an Air Max shoe, you automatically know it's an Air Max shoe because there's a bubble in the sole, right? right. There's that mm-hmm. air pocket. Right. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but the first iteration of this technology, which was really created by a guy named M. Frank Rudy, and he was a NASA engineer who actually right. developed the technology yes. to protect head uh, the the head the astronaut's head from trauma by putting air pockets there. Gotcha. So he sold that technology to Nike to put it in the soil. Interesting. We've got about 30 seconds left so I want to to make sure that you get in your in your point uh, here soon. So Okay, let me just be very So first thing first, uh, notice power, you need a signature element and they figured that was for them it was this idea of the air pocket. Mm-hmm. The next thing in order to power is they needed to make sure that they married the old with the new. So in every iteration over the 31 years, they've always protected the air pocket, but they've always added three elements to keep it relevant and uh, around. First is added innovation. They kept innovating on that air pocket to make it bigger and bigger. Uh-huh. And then the second thing is they added brand new design to make it fresh and exciting and new. And lastly, they added great storytelling every single year to make the brand more meaningful and more relevant to people. Very, very cool stuff. Soon you, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It was great to have you, and I hope you join us again soon. Thank you so much, America. Excellent. Listeners, if you're interested in learning more about Soon You, head to SoonYou.com, S-O-O-N-Y-U.com, or follow him on Twitter at Soon Speaks One Word. When we come back, we'll have Wes McLaughlin, uh-oh, my head's bopping, of Marin Software, discussing how to bridge the gap between search and social marketing. You're listening to Marketing Matters, and I'm going to get in the hoopty right now and right off into the commercial break America Street on Business Radio XM 111.
For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.